Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. I'm Roman Zipliaka, and today I'm talking to Mikfu Shao. Hi, Mikfu. Hi, Roman. Hi, everyone. Mikfu is a Lane Fellow at Carnegie Mellon University, and I recently read his preprint that he and Carl Kingsford published on my archive that describes his software called Scallop. And uh, Scallop is a transcriptome assembler. Mikfu, I want to talk to you about Scallop today, but before that, let's get to know you. Could you tell us a bit about your background? Uh, yeah. So my background is in computer science. So uh, my bachelor was in Beijing Institute of Technology. Uh, and my master is in Chinese Academy of Sciences. So during master, uh, I worked on uh, something related with protein folding and protein structure prediction. And then I went to uh, EPFL called uh, Swiss uh, Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne, Switzerland, uh, where I worked on comparative genomics, especially in design algorithms to solve those edit distance problem and their genome rearrangements. Uh, so after that, I joined CMU uh, as a Lane Fellow working with Carl Kingsford. And uh, my project uh, is focusing on uh, transcript assembly. Oh, very impressive. That's a very diverse set of bioinformatics problems. Uh, what motivates you to work on these problems? I'm interested in algorithm design. Uh, and also, uh, I'm interested in like solving uh, real-world applications. So not just like Q-theoretical thing. So uh, I think uh, in bioinformatics field, there are many important problems that requires uh, algorithm design. So I think Scallop is a very nice example uh, to illustrate the research that I'm interested in. Like to solve the transcript assembly, you need to uh, first formalize that as a like uh, mathematical optim optimization problem. And then you need to figure out why it's hard, uh, what's the property, and uh, what's the insights. And then you need to design algorithm according to those insights. So after that, uh, this is the theoretical part. So after that, I'm also interested in implementing the algorithm to provide a tool or software uh, for users. And uh, were you familiar with transcriptomics before you came to Carl's lab? Uh, no, uh, it's a completely like new uh, small field for me. So I never touched, you know, the sequencing technology, uh, the reads. I never uh, work on this uh, field. So, so transcript assembly is a new problem for me. So I found it's interesting because uh, it's uh, it's still open and challenging. So there are many uh, existing assemblers, but uh, uh, they are still not accurate enough. So there is big, big room to improve them. That's one reason. Uh, the other is also, uh, this problem is also very like algorithm uh, interesting. Yeah, so I think those two factors are the reason that I choose this problem to work on. Cool. So do you plan to continue to work on this problem in the future, or would you like to try something else? I think I will keep working on uh, transcriptomics and also maybe uh, cancer transcriptomics. So Carl's group uh, has pretty diverse uh, topics, so I might uh, collaborating with uh, my colleagues on working on cancer. 
so particularly, uh, my interest in is like uh, solve those computational challenging problems and provide tools and softwares uh, for our community. Okay, so let's talk about the community and uh, about some ways in which the community could use a tool like Scallop. And perhaps we should start by explaining what RNA-seq is, uh, just in case any of our listeners are not familiar with this. And then you could explain how Scallop helps to analyze the RNA-seq data. Uh, so RNA-seq is a technology that can be used to capture the expressed transcripts in a sample. But you, we usually got the short reads, not the full-length transcripts. So we need to reconstruct the full-length expressed transcripts from the sequencing reads. So this is the task of transcript assembly. And Scallop is a reference-based uh, transcript assembler meaning that you uh, require a uh, reference uh, genome. So, and before assembling, you first need to uh, map all the sequencing reads to this reference genome, and you got the uh, reads alignment. So as a software, um, so the input of Scallop is just the reads alignments in BAM or SAM format. Uh, which can be uh, generated by some RNA-seq aligner like uh, top hat, star, and high set. And the output of Scallop is uh, the uh, predicted uh, expressed transcripts uh, in GTF format. So not everyone has to assemble their own transcriptome, right? So for example, if people work on a uh, model organism, what, like a human, they already have a high-quality pre-assembled transcriptome. So for these people, is there any reason, perhaps, to assemble their own transcriptome as opposed to using a pre-assembled one? Uh, right. I think uh, this is a very great question. Uh, Scallop gives uh, like sample-specific transcriptome. Uh, so it only reports the expressed transcripts in a given sample. In a sample, only 20 or 30% of the whole transcriptome will be expressed. So if you only use the whole transcriptome, then it's clearly a like overestimation. But presumably a good quantification tool like RSAM would recognize that these transcripts are not in fact expressed and just assign zero weights to these transcripts. So is there any reason to want a uh, smaller transcriptome? Yeah. Uh, so I think one reason is that the current transcriptome is not perfect. There are like uh, many evidence saying that many transcripts are still remain to be annotated. So in, in terms of this, Scallop can be used to like identify novel isoforms which are not in the current transcriptome. Right. So your main selling point must be that you're able to find those rare transcripts that are not present in the reference, whereas being able to filter out the transcripts that are in the reference but not in the sample, that may be a bit less important, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And uh, in terms of this, uh, it's especially useful to apply Scallop on those spaces that don't have a good uh, annotation database. My impression has been that whenever you assemble something, 
be it a genome or transcriptome, you generally need a pretty deep coverage. Does scallop work well under low coverage? Yeah, I think uh, when you have lower uh, coverage, uh, it's better to use a reference-based transcriptome assembler because when you do a reference-based uh, assembly, the most important thing is to correctly identify those junctions. Uh, so even if the coverage inside exon is very small, it doesn't matter because you use reference-based. The reference genome can help you to bridge the intron as long as the junction can be like uh, mapped or covered by enough freeze. So that's why usually a reference-based assembler is more accurate than a like DeNova because it allows uh, very low coverage inside intron exon. Yeah, I appreciate that scallop or another reference-based transcriptome assembler can work better under low coverage than a DeNova transcriptome assembler. On the other hand, if you compare this to just using a um, existing transcriptome, is there any reason to use scallop if you have low coverage? You can try another thing. Like you first apply scallop to assemble the transcripts, and then you merge those expressed ones with the known uh, transcriptome database. So now you have a bigger set of transcripts. And then you apply RSM or uh, other quantification tools to quantify them. Oh, that's a good point. So as we discussed earlier, if you have a good quantification algorithm, then uh, having a few extra transcripts it shouldn't hurt, right? Right, yes. I recently saw a uh, talk by Ben Langmead and uh, I will put a link to the talk, to the video and the paper on our website by informatics.chat. So I saw this talk, I watched this talk, and um, Ben describes his work. It's called Rail RNA, and uh, it is a spliced aligner for RNA secretes, which performs well on a huge, huge amount of RNA secretes. And they aligned a lot of reads from the SRA to discover novel junctions. And in order to save disk space and some time as well, they don't typically output the BAM file. They don't output the aligned reads themselves, but they only output the uh, junctions that they found. So I'm curious if Scallop could uh, only read those junctions, if it could not require a BAM file, then uh, Scallop could be used with rail RNA to assemble a transcriptome without any alignments. I think I only need the junctions and also some additional information about the uh, like cigar. So how a read is aligned to the like uh, reference genome. Oh, okay. And uh, what do you need that information for? I think it's very important because one read might uh, like span multiple exons. So if you look at their scar, it's like uh, some match and then some N. N means a junction and, and then some matching and then some junction. So that means a, a read can be mapped to multiple exons, which is very useful to provide, we call them like phasing information to reconstruct the transcripts. I see. So you require that 
phasing information in addition to raw alignments. Yeah. But presumably there is a more efficient way to store and perhaps aggregate the um, phasing information than a BAM file. So maybe Ben could alter his software rail RNA to output this phasing information in some new format. And uh, you could alter Scallop to read this phasing information. And that would make a pretty cool tandem because you could assemble a better human transcriptome based on that uh, enormous amount of data. Exactly, yeah. I don't use the reads uh, stored in the BAM file. So I use BAM file because it's, you know, it's convenient. It's like a community standard. Yeah, as you said, the junction and phasing information are the only thing I need. When you worked on Scallop, what was your development process like? Because Scallop is both an algorithm and an implementation. So did you design the algorithm first and implemented it later? Or did you work iteratively and... Uh, develop them simultaneously? At the beginning of this project, we focus on like algorithm, focus on theoretical part. So I think that takes about half a year. We came up with some theoretical results, which is called like minimum path flow decomposition problem. And we came up with the algorithm for that. But that problem is a bit different from real case of transcript assembly. And then after that, we try to, you know, working on the real data sets, to see whether this like theoretical model can be applied to real datasets. And we found that there, there's some problem there. And then we switched to design more specific algorithm for more realistic scenarios, uh, transcript assembly. Yeah, I think it's a great approach when you first start with a simpler problem and see if you can at least solve that first. So let's discuss that mathematical model that you came up with. Maybe we start from example. Like, for example, we have a gene uh, with multiple axons. And also this gene has multiple, like, spliced isoform that are expressed. Thinking about the situation that two expressed transcripts share a junction, then we only observe the, like, superimposed abundance of this junction instead of the individual abundance of the two uh, transcripts that share this junction. So to clarify, the abundance of a junction is basically a number of reads such that the first half of the read maps to the first axon and the second half of the read maps to the second axon. And this is a junction between the two axons. So you count the total number of reads that map in this way. And this is your junction abundance, right? Exactly, yeah. So the situation is we only observe this merged thing. So it's, mer it's a graph, like each axon is a vertex and each junction is an edge. So what we observe is this merged graph from many like individual uh, transcripts. So the problem is to reconstruct those individual paths from this like merged graph. We call it sp splice graph. If we further assume that, each transcript contribute equally to the junctions that it has, then this problem can be formulated as a like a flow decomposition problem. If we further assume the uh, parsimony assumption, 
like we want to explain the splice graph with minimized number of paths, then this becomes a like pure mathematical problem called like minimum path flow decomposition problem. And perhaps this is a good time to explain what a flow is. Yeah, yeah. So a flow of a graph is defined on uh, the weights of the edges. So suppose that there is a weight for every edge. So what is a flow? So if a flow just need to satisfy this condition that for each vertex, the sum of the inflow should equal to the sum of the outflow. Uh, let me repeat. So uh, for each vertex, the sum of the weights of the in edges should be identical to the sum of the weights of the out edges. So if that condition satisfies for every vertex, then we say that, okay, the flow on the edges form a flow. And uh, the splice graph automatically satisfies that property because each read covering a junction contributes equally to the uh, left axon and to the right axon of a junction, right? No, I think uh, the reason why we assume that it's a flow is that it's merged from many paths. But it's very important that in, in reality, this is not a flow. Because in reality, for each transcript, so the reads for different junctions are different, might be different. Of course, it should like uh, close to its real abundance of this transcript. But, you know, sequencing process is a random sampling process. It might end up with more samplings, more reads on this junction, but less reads on the other junction. So this makes that in real situation, it's not a flow. Uh, I see. So I was imagining perhaps a different graph, a dual graph to the splice graph, where uh, the junctions are vertices and axons between junctions are edges. But the splice graph is the one where axons are vertices and junctions are edges and uh, the weights are attached to junctions. So this graph will be a flow, for example, if the coverage is precisely uniform across all transcripts. Right, yeah. That's actually an assumption, which is not the case in reality. All right, so you make this assumption. You assume that your graph, your splice graph, is a flow. What next? Uh, were you able to decompose the graph into transcripts based on this assumption? So this problem is NP-hard, meaning there is no efficient uh, algorithm until P equals to NP. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so there are existing some heuristics, and we did something more. Uh, and our main contribution is some insights about this, pro this problem. So we proved some property. We proved that, like, the gap between the number of uh, optimal paths and a known upbound is uh, determined by the number of independent vectors in some space. So this uh, very important insights uh, actually uh, gives us a iterative algorithm. So we can try to identify such vector and then use the vector to reduce the gap. Actually, it's a gap-reducing algorithm. So to make our solution as close to the optimal solution as possible, right? That's the main idea uh, we proposed in the flow decomposition paper. So you found this efficient, good heuristic for this theoretical problem, and then you try to apply 
the same heuristic to the um, real-world problem of transcript assembly. Was that easy? Did it apply well? So it's related, but also has two like uh, difference. The first is uh, I just mentioned that in transcript assembly, it's not a flow anymore. Uh, although the like although the uh, information is still there, but you can imagine it's a flow like with errors with noise. The other difference is uh, in transcript assembly, we have additional information of phasing information or phasing paths. So uh, that are those reads that span more than uh, like uh, three axons. So in real transcript assembly, we have those two differences. Actually, we design a pretty different algorithm with with flow decomposition. Uh, right. So the main idea here is to uh, iteratively decompose the graph. It's still decomposed, uh, but um, we guarantee that uh, when we decompose the graph, we preserve all the, all the given like phasing paths. So this is one clear um, difference from the flow decomposition paper. Uh, also, uh, we when we decompose the graph into paths, we divide all the vertices into three types, uh, namely like uh, trivial vertices. Uh, and non-trivial vertices and four non-trivial vertices. We further divided them into like uh, splitable vertices and unsplitable vertices. And we define different subroutines to uh, decompose these three types of vertices. Yeah, let's dive deeper into the algorithm now. Let's talk a little bit about these different types of vertices and to remind our listeners, the vertices correspond to axons. So what are the uh, trivial vertices, for instance? So yeah, yeah, uh, vertices uh, correspond to uh, axons. By like trivial vertex, I mean the in-degree of this vertex is 1, or the after-degree of this vertex is 1. So if I understand correctly, you call a vertex trivial if the corresponding axon is um, in all transcripts in which it participates, it is always to the right of the same axon or to the left of the same axon. Right. Or perhaps it is always the first axon in the transcript or it is the last. It is always the last axon in the transcript. Does that also count? Uh, that also counts. Yeah. I think that's a very good summary. Yeah. Okay, so how does that help you knowing that a particular axon or a particular vertex is trivial? What do you do with it? Uh, for trivial vertex or trivial axons, uh, there is only a unique way to decompose that. So maybe let's take the example like axon A uh, is trivial. For example, there is only one uh, axon, which is B, that points to A. And there are two other axons like C and D, which points from A. So it's like B, A, C, D. B points to A, A points to C, and also A points to D. Then we can decompose this part as follows, like B, A, C, and B, A, D. So A will be splitted into two, right? Yeah, so decomposing a vertex means that you split it into two vertices, and you split the original edges of that vertex between the two new vertices. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah, for this case, it's clear that there's only one explanation what's happening. So it's two transcripts. One goes from B A C, the other goes from B A D. Yeah. So there is no ambiguity.、Uh, yeah. Okay. So what about the other types of vertices? Right. So for other、uh, types, it's more com. It's a bit complicated.、Uh, so because for each vertex,、uh, like this is non-trivial, meaning the input the input junctions are more than two,、uh, or is more than one, at least two. And also, the output junctions are also at least two, so that you know、uh, end up with multiple possible decomposition. So the situation is not unique anymore. So for this like non-trivial vertex, we further divide them into two types depending on the phasing information. So if、uh, intuitively, if the phasing information Covers all the possible junctions、uh, related with this vertex. Then we say it's like unsplitable, meaning that okay, we can decompose this axon、uh, completely depending on the phasing information. Like this, the phasing information is enough for us to decompose this axon. So we call it unsplitable vertex. It's a bit paradoxical because it sounds like for Unsplitable vertices. You actually know precisely how to split, how to decompose them, right? Ah,、uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, yeah,、uh, it is. Yeah, you are right.、Uh, so it's a bit, uh, 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 it's a bit not intuitive in terms of the name. So maybe we compare with like splitable vertex. Yeah. I think that's easier, right? Splitable vertex means that、um, we can split this vertex into two、uh, to minimize to try to like minimize、uh, the number of paths required. So, because for splitable vertex, we don't have enough information. Ah,、uh, in, we don't have enough phasing information. So, in that case, we try to like. We try to apply the parsimony assumption. Try to reduce the number of、uh, paths. So how to do that? We we try to split this vertex into two.、Um, that helps us reduce the number of paths required. Aha!、Uh-huh. So splitable vertices are those for which there is not enough phasing information available, and、uh, the problem becomes under constrained. And then you have to impose this additional parsimony principle, right? Maybe let me give an example. Uh, so uh, let's let's consider one axon like axon A with two input、uh, junctions and two output junctions. So, for example, with the two input axons, one is covered by ten、uh, rays. And the other junction is by 100 rays, and for the two output junctions, one is covered by 10 rays, and the other is covered by 100 rays. So you see, the two input junctions 10 and 100, and the two output junctions also 10 and 100. Then you would say, okay, one transcript must 
goes from 10 exon A and then 10 junction. So the other transcript must go through 100 junction and then exon A and those uh, and then this junction with 100 reads. Right. Oh, that's a great example. And uh, I think it really helps to visualize what's going on here. But I'm curious, what if it's the same picture as you draw, except all four numbers equal 100? So in this case, there is a non-parsimonious answer, which is to have four transcripts, each with the abundance of maybe 50. Or we could apply the parsimony principle, but then we have to split the four junctions among two transcripts in a arbitrary way. So we can explain this picture with just two transcripts, but there are two ways to explain this picture with two transcripts. And of course, only one of them may be correct, or, or maybe neither. But if you make this decision to assume only two transcripts, then the pair you have to pick is pretty arbitrary, isn't it? Yeah, you are right. So if there is no phasing information, there's no such covering information to help us divide it, then then we have no information to do. So I, I believe the result is like kind of arbitrary. So if like two input junctions are both 100 and two output junctions are also 100, then no information to tell us how to go. So in order to prevent this from happening, I think the answer is just have more phasing information. Right. And if we have enough phasing information, then all vertices become either trivial or unsplittable. And what are the ways in which we can supply more phasing information to scallop? Uh, yeah, I think that depends on the data we have. I think the longer reads we have, the more powerful phasing information we have, and then we expect we can expect more accurate results. Yeah, right. So I think the length of the reads is one important factor, and also the coverage. The more the higher coverage you have, the uh, more accurate results we can uh, expect. Because as I, as we just discussed, for those uh, vertices for those uh, split ball vertices that are not covered by enough phasing information, we rely on the coverage information. So yeah, so the higher coverage helps us uh, decomposing split ball vertices. Yeah. So would it be ideal for Scallop to use reads from something like PacBio or Nanopore, right? Those sequencers produce very long reads and very long reads give you phasing information? Uh, yeah, this is a very uh, good question. So actually, in the current submission, we haven't uh, done that. We haven't applied it to uh, like pack by long reads. But so those long reads uh, can be like easily incorporated into our framework. So just uh, model them as like phasing paths. So so the algorithm we provide is a general framework that can be uh, applied to reads uh, with any length. And we guarantee uh, that all phasing paths information can be used. I also found it interesting that you use linear programming in Scallop. Could you talk a little bit about where linear programming comes up? 
Yeah. So the linear programming is used to decompose unsplit ball uh, vertices. So as uh, we discussed before, uh, so what is uh, unsplit ball vertices are covered by enough phasing information. So then then we try to decompose the uh, this vertex according to the phasing information, but we also want to uh, assign the weights uh, to minimize the the deviation from the observed coverage. So here we have two objectives. One is to um, you know try to minimize the number of paths required. The other is to to try to minimize the deviation from the observed read coverage. But for unsplitable vertices, the number of path required is kind of fixed because it's determined by the phasing paths. So then we only have only one objective, which is to minimize the deviation from the observed coverage. So in this case, we use linear programming to minimize the deviation from the read coverage uh, with the constraints that it follows exactly the phasing information tells us. Here's what I find confusing. So we said before that unsplittable vertices can be decomposed in a unique way. So if that decomposition is unique, why do you need to optimize anything? Uh, because you know how to like it. Uh, it goes, but you need to assign the new weights for each decomposed path. For example, again, like we have two uh, in uh, junctions and two out junctions, and after like decomposition, this uh, this vertex will disappear. And we end up with some new paths. But what's the new width for these paths or these new edges? This should be determined here by make them, making them as close to the observed coverage as possible. Okay, and you said you only do this for unsplittable vertices. But doesn't the same problem come up for splittable vertices? Uh, with like splitable vertices, uh, we only need to determine how to split that. Uh, so the edges will keep the same. So there's no need to assign new weights because after, uh, after splitting, so some edges will attach to the original vertices. Some edges will be deta will be attached to the new vertex. So there's no need to reassign weights. Just like uh, move some edges somewhere. I see. So for splittable vertices, you have a different kind of optimization problem than for unsplittable vertices. So how do you solve that optimization problem? For splittable vertices, uh, we use the subset sum, like uh, uh, we formulate it as a subset sum problem and solve that using a existing dynamic programming algorithm. Uh, because for splittable vertices, so the problem we need to solve is to make them as balanced as possible. Like the example we just like uh, uh, use. So we try to, you know, choose a subset of the in junctions and a subset of the out junctions to make them as balanced as possible. So yeah. And uh, this is what makes this problem NP-hard, right? Uh, yeah, it's NP-hard, but uh, it can be efficiently solved by like pseudo polynomial time algorithm. So we already discussed long reads or longer reads as one source of phasing information that Scallop can use. 
But another source of phasing information is paired end reads, right? So could you explain how Scallop uses paired end reads? Right. Yeah, I think this is also very important. Uh, so with like uh, paired end reads, so we try to uh, get the phasing information of each mate pair, mate read. And then we check whether the two mate reads can be uh, connected or can be bridged by a unique path. If the path between them is unique, then we combine those like reads together. Otherwise, we don't use the paired any information. Of course, we do use the individual, you know, uh, mate read. Maybe each mate read can still, you know, uh, span more than three axons. We do use the, that information. But if the path between these two mate pair is not unique, we do not use the, uh, paired any information anymore. So in that case, you don't use the pairing information because while you know that the junctions belong to the same transcript, you don't know which transcript it is. And there may be multiple transcripts. But it seems like if you know the insert size, then you can infer the uh, length of the path and you can disambiguate between multiple alternative paths based on that length inferred from the insert size, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So I think uh, that's uh, that's the part we haven't implemented. So yeah, currently we just like ignore those uh, paired any information if the path is not unique. Uh, but yeah, as you said, we can, you know, infer the most likely, you know, path according to the like insert size distribution. Is Scallop the first transcript assembler that takes advantage of the phasing information? So I think some existing assemblers use the phasing information, uh, but some assemblers uh, don't use phasing information. Uh, but uh, scallop can be proved to guarantee like uh, preserving all the phasing paths. So that's the most important algorithm contribution of scallop to this problem. And it is also the one of the key reasons why Scallop is better. But it's quite easy to preserve all phasing information, right? You just report all possible transcripts, all possible junction combinations, like a Cartesian product. So I think the hard problem here is to preserve all phasing information while still reporting a reasonable set of transcripts yeah yeah right yeah that's true uh so in addition to that yeah i think that's the one key uh, property we want to uh like uh uh to have uh but we also want to like minimize the number of paths required yeah as you said a trivial solution is just to you know cover everything and use uh tons of paths, but we don't do that. We also try to minimize the number of paths under the path many uh, assumption. And also, we want to minimize the deviation uh, from the observed coverage. So those three things are combined together in our like algorithm. Yeah, I think it's remarkable that you can balance all these conflicting criteria. And uh, another thing I found cool about Scallop is that you don't only assemble the transcriptome, you, as part of your algorithm, can actually compute the expression of the transcripts, right? 
So yes, as you said, it also outposts the expression abundance uh, of each predict transcript. Yeah, it gives you both the transcript and its expression abundance. Have you compared the accuracy of quantification performed by Scallop to something like RSAM? Yeah, very good question. So uh, we haven't compared them. Uh, actually, that's the work I'm doing now. So like, you know, combine quantification and assembly. Uh, so yeah, so right, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, we haven't done that. And in general, how do you evaluate the accuracy of a transcriptome assembler? I imagine it is quite tricky because you don't know the truth. Uh, yeah. Uh, so currently, uh, and also commonly used method is to compare to the reference, like known database. Uh, so for example, uh, for a predicted transcript, we see it's correct if it's intron chain can be exactly matched to a known transcript in the database. So of course we know, uh, so only a subset of the transcripts in the database are expressed. And there might be some novel ones. But this way is still, you know, a uh, very good way to compare, to relatively compare the performance of the, of the methods. So it's fair for uh, those methods, although it's not, you know, perfect because we don't know the ground truth. Yeah. Yeah, so if you discover a transcript, a true transcript that doesn't happen to be in the database, then uh, you won't get points for it. You even will get punished for that, right? Exactly, yeah, that's true. Yeah, because we realize that the current transcriptome is not perfect, is incomplete. Uh, currently, we are trying to you know, build a better transcriptome from the large-scale datasets. So we, you know, uh, use many existing RSEQ datasets and then try to assemble them and then try to like merge the predicted ones to build a better transcriptome. Yeah, that's also something I'm doing now. Yeah, I think this overlaps largely with the work of Ben Langmid that I talked about before. So I definitely urge you to look at that because he basically did a lot of that work. He did the spliced alignment of all those RNA-seq reads, and he got the junctions. The only problem is that he may not have the phasing information that you require. And I'm curious if something can be done there. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mingfu, it was great to talk to you. I think I now understand your paper much better than I did before. And uh, I highly recommend all our listeners to go check out your uh, papers. Uh, we will have the links on the website, bioinformatics.chat. And uh, those who deal with RNA-seq data, uh, definitely give Scallop a try and perhaps give Mingfu some feedback. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm very glad to have this opportunity to uh, introduce our work. And yeah, so I'm, we are open to our users and we will add features according to our users' uh, users feedback and uh, comments. Yeah. Awesome. This was Ming Fu Xiao. Thank you for listening.